Welcome to the podcast Love at First Science with me, your host and fellow inquisitive inquirer, lover of all things nerdy, Celeste. As a physiotherapist and neuroscience student, I really do love science. But I'm also really interested in the world of business, creativity, psychology. So this podcast is going to interview all sorts of different people from many different backgrounds to really gain an understanding of the science behind their passion. Our final guest in the core series is Mike Golden. He's the Director of Education for Z Health Performance. And as you all know, I'm a very big fan of Z Health. I actually wrote to their company saying, have you guys got anyone who can talk about the topic of the core? And um, they suggested I talk to Mike. And I was honestly so blown away by not just his level of knowledge, but his attention to detail. In fact, if you can, head to my website, celestepereira.com, click on the podcast series and head to the YouTube link. It's unlisted, so you'd need to go through my website to get to it. But the reason I encourage you to do that is Mike shares slides on that video showing the various spinal pathways that deal with reflexive core activation, pathways that get disrupted when you consciously engage your core. You know, this is an unconscious system that we should allow the unconscious to control. Um, and he also gives us some tips on how we can strengthen up those pathways. In addition, he goes to great lengths to share current cutting edge scientific literature around the topic of the core and why we should be allowing the system to do its thing without us always telling people to engage it on a conscious level. So who else is Mike? He's obviously the director of Z Health Performance Education, as I mentioned, but he's also someone who he received his undergraduate degree, um, I think in 2005, but interestingly actually went on to pursue a career in martial arts. And using his brain-based training, he, he gave fast track results to his clients, especially helping them overcome pain. Over the past two decades, he's relentlessly pursued professional development through using Z Health and also helped many, many people that have suffered in their bodies. Guys, enjoy Mike. He is deeply passionate. I tried to kind of chip in a couple of times and eventually I realized, you know what? Mike just needs to do his thing. And if I ever get him back in the future, I'm just going to sit back and put my feet up and listen to the endless wealth of this incredible individual. Guys, you're in for a treat. Enjoy Mike Golden. So everybody, it's my great honor to welcome Mike Golden, who is the lead educator for Z Health. And it has been many chuckles that I've had watching very deep content that Z Health has put out there. And the chuckles have been courtesy of wonderful Mike Golden. And uh, I wanted to give you guys more of a broad aspect around the core. And I decided actually we need someone with more of a brain-based approach. And Mike stepped up to the challenge. So thank you for joining us, Mike. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so, Mike, before we jump straight into this deep topic, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your story. Yeah. Um, so, as you mentioned, I am the director of education for a company called Z Health Performance Solutions. And Z Health is an education company focused on applied neuroscience. And so, what that means is we teach uh, physicians, therapists, personal trainers, athletic coaches, uh, how to use the nervous system to make the people they work with better at whatever they want to be better at. 
whether that's athletic performance, academic performance, um, it could be injury rehabilitation, it could be pain relief. Basically, everything that folks want to be better at is like up here somewhere. Uh, and so we just teach you how to figure out what needs to be trained and how do you train it. Uh, I started some of my background. Uh, I came out of school and I ended up teaching martial arts uh, full time for about 12 years. During that time as well, uh, I started to work with people one on one as a personal trainer, uh, first starting with uh, mainly uh, athletic performance, fitness goals. But as I started to get into the brain and the nervous system, I then started to also work with people on pain relief and injury rehabilitation. Uh, I was doing that primarily out of the martial arts school, but then I also branched out. I ended up having office space in a couple of different locations for optometrists, so eye doctors. Uh, when you start working with the brain, there's a lot of vision stuff in there, and you can start using vision to help people with vision, uh, but then also to basically whatever brain area you want to target. I can do something with your eyes and probably get in there. And so uh, I was able to use eye work to do a lot of different things. Uh, and that attracted the attention of the optometrist and made me kind of a good fit in that office. And through him, I ended up working with uh, a lot of clients on uh, with brain injuries, uh, doing work with uh, learning disabilities, neurobehavioral disorders. So that's things like autism and uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. And so physicians would uh, refer people to him and then he would refer them to me because I was just right across the hall from him uh, and started getting into a lot of that. And then uh, I've been teaching for Z Health for probably the past uh, eight years or so. And then for the past three years, uh, I've been working full time with them, uh, as you said, as leading the uh, kind of education curriculum development and with the pandemic, creating new online uh, curriculum stuff, too, in addition to the uh, in-person stuff that we were doing before. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's very apparent when I'm listening to the lectures that you give on Z Health, just how much experience you have, particularly the thing that was that really stood out to me is all the little stories you tell, all the anecdotal stories from working with clients. And I remember you actually shared one of your own personal stories where you had something going on with your eyes, so your head tilted, and then your whole body as a result kind of had this weird thing going on underneath it. And I was like, oh, Mike would be a really good guy to quiz about the core because he <laughs> has lived it. And you actually had to approach adjusting the body from such a unique perspective because I'm sure, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you tried the traditional thing of like, you know, going to the gym and doing all the like proprioceptive based stuff and, you know, progressive overload and engagement. And then, you know, obviously so many of us have the experience where it just doesn't work and we're putting in all the time and all the effort and it just doesn't click. And that's when the brain just suddenly makes so much sense to us. Yeah. So for me, um, I ended up having quite a bit of dysfunction here, right? Like from, <laughs> from the neck to the pelvis, like all of that stuff was uh, pretty out of whack for me. And uh, I didn't necessarily even know that it was creating my problems till I started investigating it more. Uh, one of the things that uh, I was experiencing was quite a few rib injuries. And uh, so in the process of rehabilitating one of those injuries, uh, I had a pretty serious one where uh, I was doing jujitsu and a lot of in the martial arts, like 
I would always get hurt way more when I was trying to do stuff in an instructional way. Uh, so I'd be fighting with people, sparring with people, and I'd be trying to help them learn in the process. And because I was trying to be nice, I would get injured. Uh, and so in this instance, I was doing jujitsu sparring, which is like wrestling type stuff. And we were on the ground and he's pulling on my head. He's pulling down on it, which is making me crunch the body. Uh, but at the same time, he has his knee driving uh, into my lower rib cage. So he's pulling, I'm, I'm being crunched and he's driving in and it's all going at an angle. And then something just collapsed, slid out of place. Uh, it was not awesome. And I ended up uh, being out for six months. It was six months before I felt comfortable uh, doing any kind of uh, athletic type activities after that. Uh, in the first week, basically, anytime I laughed, I had to go to the emergency room. I had, to sleep, uh, I had to sleep sitting up. Uh, what? You know, going to the bathroom gets kind of rough when you have rib, rib injuries. You know, it's one of those things you don't necessarily think about all that much. Um, so not, not, not a fun time. And it was infuriating that nobody had anything for ribs. It was just like, just rest, just wait. And, you know, it's like, hey, you, you go to uh, rehab for your knee, for your elbow. It's like they have this whole long list of exercises and nobody really had anything for my rib. And so I started to uh, really kind of look at, okay, what is my spine doing? What, what's going on here? Uh, and I started doing, uh, trying to do voluntary movement for my spine. And I, I tried to do uh, planks. I tried doing foam rolling. Uh, things like that. And it would always kind of feel good or help in the moment. But then I was finding that everything was reverting back to the way that it was. Uh, and I was looking at movement systems, to try to figure out what is so wrong with my movement that I keep getting hurt. I keep spraining my knees. I keep uh, injuring my ribs. What is going on here? And at a certain point, when I started, uh, when I got a little bit into the uh, Z Health curriculum, and I started learning about some of the neural control mechanisms for your core, for your trunk, for your paraspinal musculature, all that type of stuff, your posture, balance, uh, I started to realize that I had some problems going on that I didn't realize were problems. And because of issues with my eyes and my inner ear, these things are talking to your musculature every second of every day. Uh, this may not be something that you've been exposed to in uh, typical exercise training, but you have pathways that are going from your vestibular system, your inner ear, your balance system, down to every level of your spinal cord to influence all of your muscles throughout your entire body. Every eye movement that you perform, every time a visual stimulus appears in the environment, it immediately has alterations in muscle tone, in blood pressure, in uh, skin sweating, like it, it changes your autonomics, it changes your muscle tone every second of every day. And we can show later, I could show you the spinal cord and what those pathways are, but they are constantly adjusting and controlling what is going on in your trunk. And for me, as you mentioned, I had dysfunction with my eyes, I had dysfunctions with my inner ear. Uh, one of your brain's highest priorities is to see things. Your eyes are extremely important, extremely high priority. And what had happened to me was that I had corrective laser surgery on my eyes. Uh, 
Some of your listeners may be familiar with things like LASIK surgery, L-A-S-I-K. And that is, uh, they basically cut a flap in the eye. They pull that flap back. They do laser work to restructure your cornea. And then they put the flap back down and then the flap heals and you're good to go. And a lot of times with that type of surgery, you have both eyes done at the same time. You're, you can go back to work the next day. That's not the surgery I had uh, because of the work that I was doing where there was a lot of impact. I was getting punched in the face, that type of stuff. The flap can tear. And I was like, I don't want things in my eyes tearing. So let's not do that one. So instead, <laughs> I had a surgery called photorefractive keratectomy, PRK, <laughs> uh, where they scrape the cells away do the laser surgery, and then the cells grow back, kind of like a wow. scab healing over your eye, but then, you know, eventually becomes a healthier tissue. So because of that, it can take a while for you to be able to see clearly out of uh, the eyes when you have them done. So I had one eye done at a time. And I started with having my left eye done. And what that means is basically then for the next month, because I had the surgeries a month apart, for the next month, I was walking around using just my right eye because my left eye could not see clearly. Then I had the right eye done and I spent the next month walking around with just my left eye. And very understandably, what my brain then did, if I'm walking around with just that one eye, is it changed my head orientation. It turned it right. It tilted it left so that it put my left eye right in the middle because I only have that one eye to use. So let's put it right in the midline so it can do as much work as possible. There's no reason to have it hanging over to the left side of me when it's doing all the work. So my brain orients it towards the middle without me being aware of it, without me doing it on purpose. It just does it. And again, rightfully so. That, that makes sense. Now, after the month when my right eye came back online, it was not as clear as my left one. My left eye uh, in the US, we call it 2020. Uh, sometimes in Europe, you'll hear 66 kind of thing. Um, my right eye, however, was 2040. So the acuity was lower. And that's all they guaranteed with the surgery. They said, hey, we guarantee you this 2040. Uh, you know, you may not be 2020. If it's worse than that, uh, then the 2040 will redo it. But so my right eye, when it was done, was still not as clear as my left. I had spent a month operating with just my left. And so I was very good at using basically just my left eye for everything. And then when my right eye tried to help, the left eye was like, yeah, buddy, we got this and you're not really functioning all that well anyway. So why don't you just sit this one out for a little while? And so I kept this change in head orientation. Yeah. Now that then has consequences. And it has consequences from a biomechanical standpoint. It has consequences mm. from a vestibular standpoint where now I have alterations in what my brain perceives as vertical. It changes how I interpret the inner ear information because of this constant turn, this constant tilt, which again, are also constantly talking to my spine. And so with this right head turn, left head tilt, I then started to develop in my thoracic spine a right trunk tilt and a right trunk rotation to counteract what was going on up top. And when I started uh, examining, hey, what is actually going on with my spine here? When I tried to tilt my spine to the right, super easy. I could like relax and gravity would just tilt me to the right. When I tried to tilt left, it was hard and quite uncomfortable in order to do it. And same thing with, with rotations. I was tilted right, 
turned right through the thoracic spine. And again, the head was turned right tilted left. Now, I then started to kind of correlate that with some of the stuff that I, I noticed either then or over time. I had a big history of gut dysfunction. So I had uh, pain. I had, uh, when they did endoscopies, they found bleeding in there. Uh, I had uh, bloating, which if you do contact sports, bloating is so not cool. Like you're just, you feel like you're so full and then you're taking impacts and it's awful. Uh, it feels like you're a balloon that's going to pop. Um, so that kind of sucked. Uh, and then when I started doing work uh, with breathing and respiration in my diaphragm, which I know is something you cover quite a bit as well, uh, because of this body orientation, basically uh, my, the right side of my diaphragm was squished. So when I tried to like, hey, let me try to contract my diaphragm, stretch my diaphragm, the right side was like paralyzed. It was, it had been squished for so long, it couldn't go anywhere. And so it just stopped trying. So that led to diaphragmatic issues, breathing issues, which then can also be, uh, uh, lead to those gut issues. Your liver's uh, over there on that side too, dealing with uh, all of your sugar needs uh, when you're not eating. And so I had metabolic problems too, that led to hypersensitivities uh, with a lot of stuff um, from a kind of biomechanical muscular standpoint, this posturing here, uh, you know, I don't know if you can notice looking at me, but it sticks the left side of my rib cage out, which is where I had the bulk of my rib injuries. And when people are trying to kick me, when people are doing other things, like this left side of my rib cage is just presented out there going, Hey, break me. I dare you. And people took me up on that and they broke them. Uh, I had, uh, scapular pain around the left shoulder here, this tilting, uh, basically like if you watch me walk, uh, like this, you'll see that my left arm does not swing as much as my right. And so it was leading to, uh, scapular issues. Um, it was, uh, uh, power wise, mobility wise in the shoulder. It felt like unsafe sometimes to use my arm. Uh, and then because everything was wound this way, the fascia then oriented along these lines as well to support this position, to make it less muscular demanding. The, the fascia is like long-term support. Uh, and so the fascia started to wind to support this and make it easier for me to stay in this type of position. Now, if I'm a right-handed athlete and I'm supposed to be very strong on this right side with my right-handed punching, my right-handed throwing, my right-handed kicking, which all involve left rotations, but all of my fascia is wound to the right, fighting every left rotation I ever do, well, then my power is decreased. And that's definitely what I was finding. I was like, hey, why am I so much more comfortable throwing these left-handed strikes, these left-legged strikes that have me twisting to the right? I just thought, hey, this is just, you know, what I'm good at. And I, and I oriented my game around it. When I'm fighting on the ground, that tilt became part of my game. Uh, like my strategy, I would lead you to the right side of me uh, and all of my body would be oriented. So I'm saying, hey, let, let go this way and I'll attack you over here. And I was trying to block people off from the left side because I knew I couldn't tilt that way and go that way. Wow. So I just let everybody go one way and dealt with them over there. Um, so I had power deficits. Again, it limited me strategically, tactically uh, in my sports. I was predisposed to injury, visceral issues, breathing issues, metabolic issues. And yeah, doing like thoracic movements and foam rolling was not fixing it. And when I started to then address the eye imbalances, when I started to address the uh, vestibular deficits, that's when things actually started to correct themselves. 
I still did work to like unwind the fascia. I still did fascial work. I did uh, actual voluntary body stuff where I was on purpose trying to counter the posturing that I had been in for so long. You know, I did muscular work for it too, but I just had to make sure that the higher order systems that are driving these muscles every millisecond of every day are doing what they're supposed to do. So I'm not overriding the voluntary work. I'm not overriding the muscular work, the fascial work uh, that was going on. Cause like you said, I was putting in a ton of work and not getting anywhere. Uh, and it was very frustrating. Uh, it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know how much longer I want to do this for. Yeah. And Fortunately, it's so I found other ideas. Yeah. And this is the thing that I wanted to touch on. I think a lot of people would have started at the fascia. Oh, my fascia is wound this way. Oh, I know what I need to do. I need to just work on the fascia. And I think a lot of people have been in our camp where they've been doing that for so long and they do give up because at a certain point you're like the definition of mad, right? You're, you're doing the same thing over and over again, hoping yeah. for a different result and that different result never comes. So that's where the higher order systems come in. Your story is very powerful. I'm so happy you went into all that detail because particularly what it unpicks is that we do have to address those higher order systems. And that's going to have a far more profound, long lasting effect on all of the systems underneath that, and particularly the proprioceptive system, which is what most people target first. And with that being said, in terms of core engagement, I one of my big things that I'm just trying to get the message out there is that everyone's always talking about, you know, engage your core, engage your core, and it's leading to issues that you mentioned, gut issues, people on accessing their diaphragms. I think um, they're developing anxiety issues because they haven't got that um, diaphragmatic excursion. Um, and actually, what we should be doing is getting our core musculature working reflexively, as opposed to us always, yes, we can use conscious engagement the way you did, you know, I unwound my fascia, I loaded it um, in unusual positions that I'm not comfortable in. But you also went after the higher order systems. And that's why I wanted to bring you on to tell us more about that. Yeah. And so overall, like we just want to have as complete a picture as possible and know what tools are for what people when. Because uh, yes, can you do conscious stuff and fix these things? Can you do fascial work and fix these things? Yes, sometimes. But you want to make sure that you always have the complete picture so you know, hey, this person, that's going to be a good strategy. And that's where our time is going to be best spent. For this person, we'll do that. But we need to make sure that their funky eye is being addressed. We want to make sure that, yeah, when you had that concussion and it uh, created that issue in your inner ear, that we're solving that as well at the same time. Um, so, you know, everything's about just uh, efficiency. When I'm training you, I want your brain and body to be as efficient as possible. And when I'm teaching trainers, therapists, physicians, I want them to be as efficient as possible too when helping people. So it's all about knowing where is your time going to be best spent. Uh, and for something like core engagement, again, when you look at the, the complete picture, can you sometimes get benefit from conscious core engagement? Yes. But what I want folks to understand is that there is a lot of unconscious control going on and that it may actually be strategically better than the, anything you're going to create consciously. And so we have two things that we are interested in here. Number one are in anticipatory postural adjustments, APAs. And these are predictive adjustments to everything going on in your core that happen about uh, 100 to 50 milliseconds before you start movement. 
or uh, potentially with some overlap where like 50 milliseconds into your movement, they may still uh, be created. Uh, and so very fast latency responses, meaning they are generated extremely quickly. They need to happen in a very specific timing, like just before you start to move. Like we're talking thousands, thousands of seconds uh, before you start to move. You have a prediction going for what I'm about to do. What are my stability needs? What are my postural demands? What are my pressure demands going on in here? And your brain creates it. Then you have compensatory postural adjustments, which are happening after you have started to move. And these are more of your pure spinal cord level reflexes, brainstem level reflexes. Uh, they are vestibular reflexes. They are your myotatic or stretch reflexes in spinal musculature, right? Think, think muscle spindles. When the muscle starts to stretch suddenly, it will contract. Uh, and so this uh, prevents against sudden perturbations when you are, uh, things go slightly off course, it readjusts you very quickly. So you have these predictive, unconscious, anticipatory postural adjustments. And then you have these more purely reflexive compensatory adjustments after you have started moving. Uh, and we want to make sure that your brain understands for any particular context, what is the best way to stabilize me? Uh, you know, there's a lot of, we'll go into this uh, maybe a little bit later, but there are so many considerations going into how should I contract the core musculature and in what sequence and what parts of it, because uh, it's a lot of different muscles. And even within muscles, you're activating different patches of that muscles, upper stuff versus mid stuff, lower stuff, the left side of it versus the right side of it. Uh, and there's 16, 70, 17 different variables that your brain's trying to figure out to go, what is the best strategy here? And it needs to do it so fast, basically just faster than reflexive stuff, but way faster. Uh, so it's just slower than reflexes, but way faster than any kind of voluntary movement uh, that you're going to create. And these strategies, a lot of times, because they are uh, based on such complex calculations, when you try to consciously figure it out on your own, you mess it up. But overall, because of the complexity of the decisions that you have to make, because of the speed at which they need to be made, because of the uh, exquisite timing that needs to happen because it is then trying to activate very specific parts in a very specific sequence. And then the, you're trying to consciously create that pattern. You are going to do a much worse job than if you just let your brain do it by itself. And you give yourself something else to focus on. Get, tell your brain what the movement goal is, and it will figure out how to get you there. Quick break to share an offer. I have a three hour core workshop that's available on my website. It's an opportunity to take a deep dive into the scientific literature, to share some of the anecdotal evidence that has come through from experienced physios working within the pelvic health arena. But it also gives you some insights into how to get core engagement to happen reflexively. It's helped many people and I'll just share a couple of testimonials. One person kindly wrote to me saying, I just finished the core workshop and I am blown away by the information you provided. Another said, give me goosebumps actually, thank you for your beautifully crafted core workshop. It was one of the best workshops I've ever taken and believe me, I have taken a lot. 
Now you can learn more about the core too. Head to CelestePereira.com and in the workshops tab, click on core values. Then use the code RELAX, all lowercase, that's RELAX, to get 35% off. Uh, if you think about our, our brain and our nervous system, as far as movement is concerned, work very much like GPS devices. So when you go in your car and let's say uh, you turn on your phone, you turn on your dedicated GPS device, the way that it works is first it figures out where are you now? It has to locate you. And that's what all of your sensory systems are for. They're trying to tell you where are you, where are things in your environment right now? The next thing you do on that GPS device is you plug in, where do you want to go? What is the goal here? That's the same thing that you do. You pick a movement goal. My goal is to get from point A to point B. My goal is to get this bone from here to here. My goal is to not move. My goal is to slow this down. You tell it what the goal is, and then the cortex outsources the responsibility to then calculate how do I get from A to B? How do I accomplish the goal? And that's what your GPS does. Where are you now? You tell it where you want it to go, and then it figures out how to get you there. You're not doing that calculation. The GPS device is. And that's the same thing for you. Your brain is figuring out where you are now. You tell it where to go, and then it figures out how to get there. Hopefully, it figures it out well. If it doesn't, well, then we make adjustments. But for the most part, you're not going to make those calculations better than your supplementary motor area, your cerebellar vermin. Like, you're not, no. You're too slow, and there's too many <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for saying all that in the, the most eloquent way that I, I could ever have dreamt of. I, I, I've been trying to say this stuff, but I just haven't got the, the, the foundational knowledge that you have. So the way you're explaining it is so eloquent. And I think the message that I've been trying to share, which you've summed up so perfectly, is that us trying to consciously override our stability system is actually in some ways messing it up. And the important thing for us to do is potentially shift our conscious awareness elsewhere. And actually everything's going to be okay. But interestingly, when I sent you an email and we're having a bit of back and forth about this, you said that there are some conscious things we can do. And I was curious to actually see your opinion on what those things are. Yeah. So in order to uh, change unconscious activity, sometimes you need to bring things back to a conscious level. So you can on purpose make corrections, find where the errors are, uh, and then forget about it and return it back to the unconscious level. Uh, and so this becomes things like, okay, can we actually create uh, exercises or drills for you where you make unconscious corrections just automatically without having to think about it? At a conscious cognitive level, work your way through, how do I move my thoracic spine? How do I rotate it? How do I lateral glide it? How do I get it to glide interiorly, posteriorly? How do I uh, flex the spine in a closed chain way, in an open chain way? How does, how does this area work? Can you learn motor skills in the area? Can you drive additional sensory inputs into your brain to help those brain areas be healthier, to help the receptors be healthier? Uh, there is, I can provide sensory inputs. I can be providing vibration to your spine and the spinal muscle, muscles, uh, temperature stuff, sharp, dull, light touch, all because you have sensory receptors for all different types of sensory information. So I can provide those, make sure you can feel them, make sure you have skill at understanding them. 
we can do actual muscular work where I have, I, I will show you a picture of a muscle. I will have you on purpose, try to uh, bring the attachment points as close together as possible, uh, bring them as far apart as possible. Uh, you know, very interoceptive, internal focus type stuff if we need that. Um, but then when you go to do activities of interest, whether that is now you're doing squats, you're doing a yoga maneuver, you're throwing a ball, you're jumping, uh, you're taking a math exam, whatever we're interested in having you doing, I then need you to not think about any of those things. The conscious work hopefully helped repair the systems, teach some skills so that then the unconscious systems can use that information appropriately, accurately for any given context. And we tend to start with more general training. If that is not getting the job done, we will get more and more and more context specific where it's okay. Now we need to put you in a specific spinal position or posture. Now we need to have you moving at this speed. Now we have to add in this emotional load, this external load. We now need to add in visual stimuli and certain uh, vestibular stimuli, uh, decision-making processes while this is happening. Uh, Cause at some point you may need to, with the nervous system, and this is a general training uh, principles, the, the principle of specificity, specific adaptation to impose demands. And I will try to keep things as general as possible, but at some point we may need to get very specific to teach you very specific skills to perform in very specific contexts or to reduce the threat of certain con contexts so your brain doesn't give you pain to try to uh, protect you. So we have this expression, do the drill, forget the drill because you cannot think about this stuff while you're doing most activities. It will either uh, take away from the activity because uh, you can't pay attention to what's going on, or uh, again, because the speeds at which things normally happen, the timing that needs to happen with stuff, you trying to think about what your body is doing, you will mess up what is supposed to happen very perfectly at an unconscious level. So there is very much cognitive conscious stuff that you can do. Um, but then anytime that I can create situations where you can make unconscious adjustments and figure things out that way, that is better. Uh, and so this is the type of thing where uh, I'll have you doing movement or balance exercises and I will perturb you. And I may do that by physically bumping you. And so you have to practice making corrections. And okay, what kind of compensatory adjustments do I need? What kind of uh, predictive adjustments do I need? So I'm prepared for perturbations like this. Uh, it may be that <clears throat> I have you holding on to a band. Uh, bands are a great tool for a lot of things, one of which is teaching this type of stuff. And I may actually strap the band to your trunk and torso itself and have you trying to stabilize against rotational forces, diagonal forces, maybe straight linear side to side, front and back. But it could also be that I just have you holding it in your hand so that, because uh, a lot of these actual core engagement studies, they're done by having you move the limbs to see what your core does. And so I can, through the limbs, force you to stabilize through the trunk and have you figure out naturally what how much engagement do I need? What strategies do I need so that it, this doesn't pull me off balance so that I can perform a lift so I can perform a body movement, whatever else I'm trying to do at the same time, can I stabilize? And this is very common in a lot of sports too, where you're stabilizing with one limb while moving another. I'm holding, I'm playing basketball. I'm holding you off with this arm while I'm dribbling with the other. Can I stabilize and move at the same time? 
And maybe I take that band and I start changing directions on it. So while you're stabilizing, now the pull is coming from a different direction. It was in front of you, now it's to the side of you, now it's below you, now it's above you more. And can you constantly adjust that while your focus is on something else? And if you are not making the corrections that you should, if it gets bad enough, it will come to your attention. You will cognitively fix it and then let the unconscious stuff proceed after that. Uh, I can then also yank on that uh, band, again, to create those sudden perturbations that hopefully you can reactively uh, uh, respond to. With all of this stuff, I do want to emphasize, though, and that I am uh, encouraging efficiency. I want you to do just the right thing at just the right time with just the right amount of energy, which means during most of this stuff, I want you to relax as much as possible. Doesn't mean you're, you're, you're a bunch of jelly. It means how much can you relax and still accomplish what you are trying to accomplish? When you're standing upright, like that core musculature is engaging at like 1% of your maximum voluntary contraction. It is so low. You need way less tension than you probably think you do in order to stand upright. When I add 32 kilogram load to you, now you're at like 3% of maximum voluntary contraction, maybe 5%. And so you don't really need much to get stuff done. And through uh, history of injury, through uh, lack of familiarity with the skill, when novices, when they try new skills, they tend to contract too much and they co-contract too much. Like they have agonists and antagonists contracting at the same time, which is meant to prevent movement. Um, And so they have too much of that going on. And so when you start teaching them, hey, okay, when I'm standing upright, What can I relax in here? So instead of thinking about tightening it, how much can you relax and still stand upright without collapsing or falling over? And now if I put a kettlebell on you and you're doing lifts, how much can you relax and still create that force in your arm without, again, losing balance or losing whatever posture you're supposed to be in? Uh, Same kind of thing. If I'm perturbing you, I'm bumping you, I'm pulling on that band, you're stabilizing against something. How much tension do you really need? Because I want you using that much and no more. Uh, And then whenever you're doing any kind of movement work, you're doing elbow drills, you're doing shoulder drills, scapular uh, drills, you're doing thoracic drills. The entire time I am encouraging you to relax as much as possible while still accomplishing the movement goal, the postural goal, like whatever we're trying to do there, uh, be efficient. And then usually also encouraging lengthening in the spine. That's usually how I get the stabilization uh, is just having you try to separate the vertebrae enough, um, which is good for a movement strategy, right? When your vertebrae have more space between them, they are freer to move. Uh, They just don't run out of space when you try to move them around. Uh, And then that tension uh, will also tend to create uh, stability. Uh, Very similar to how like concrete reinforcement works with tension, steel, uh, and, and stuff like that. So just think about lengthening and then do your movement. We may have you thinking about relaxing as much as possible. And then again, when you're actually doing like real activities, stop thinking about that stuff. <laughs>
Oh man, thank you so much for saying all this, particularly it's okay to relax. Um, when I started talking about this stuff and I'm like, guys, it's important to relax. I felt like I was burned at the stake. I had some hate mail coming through, like <laughs> how dare you, you charlatan. Um, but obviously as let's say we have uh, most of my audience are yoga teachers and they are dealing with a demographic of people that visibly look so weak. Like you'll put them in a plank and they are saggy. And when they're standing, you can can just see that their body's not engaged or then you'll put them in a pose and it looks so wrong and I think that this is probably where it came from the teachers actually had good intentions and they were like I, I don't want my students to hurt themselves and they don't look good visually I think I need to give them something so you know are there any tools that you could give us like is there anything we should be saying or do you think that actually those external perturbation um, strategies are going to be the way to go or um yeah, some of the other things like using the stretchy band and kind of pulling it in different directions. Yeah. So one thing to understand is, uh, again, context. And the ability to do a plank does not necessarily translate to any other activity that you're trying to do. Uh, when you are horizontal versus vertical, that is a very different situation with different alignments of the bone, different orientation to gravity, uh, vestibular activations become different. Um, so that's different. And now do you then, if you want to keep your spine in the same shape while you are horizontal versus vertical, does that potentially require more tension? Yes. Then it becomes, why do you care? And now if you care about being horizontal in a stable way, because you like doing push-ups, because uh, of something else that you're doing, um, then awesome. Go ahead and train that and become better at it. How you become better at it then is sometimes you need to build skill. And for folks who seem to be weak in there and they have this sag going on, now one of the issues that you run into is that they don't know that that's happening. Like, why would they change anything if they're like, well, you know, again, the movement goal was just not to touch the floor and I'm not touching the floor. So I'm winning. Like, again, they gave, they gave themselves a movement goal and they are accomplishing that movement goal. So why would they do it any differently? So one thing that you can do is you can give them a different movement goal or movement target. And now it can be put a ball, put something behind their back and say, touch this, touch the ball, uh, touch my hand, preferably be something that's like not you or uh, a part of them, but actually something completely external. And you would say, hey, keep your back in contact with this. If you feel yourself lose contact, touch it again. So you're not telling them to contract anything, relax anything, okay. you're giving them the movement goal. So then their brain can figure out how do I accomplish this movement goal? And now they may come up with a strategy where they do something weird with their arms or weird with their legs. And you can say, no, 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 not, not like that. Um, you know, okay, don't move your legs, but just touch it with your back. And now they start making a different spinal shape. Mm. No, hey, I need to accomplish this. And if they start to uh, create flexion in their spine and create an arch, well, you know what? That's kind of a good movement strategy because that is a more stable structure than any kind of flat line or anything that's arcing towards the floor. That's going to be harder to support. So you know what? From an efficiency and movement intelligence perspective, yeah, like flex your spine, make an arch because that's smarter and more efficient 
And if you actually had to hold this position for a long period of time, for whatever reason, maybe the earth opened up and there's a crack in the ground and you're straddling, you know, you have your hands on one side of the chasm, <laughs> your feet on the other side of the chasm, and you had to wait for somebody to come rescue you. It's like, yeah, no, don't stay flat. Because <laughs> it is structurally more sound. Yeah, like that, that's, that, that's what the arches survived. Oh, exactly, yeah. I was about to say, the arches survived when everything collapsed in, like, let's say, the Roman Empire. The arches are the ones who survived. So I, I like that you said that, so thank you. All right, guys, that is part one of Mike Golden's interview. Please join me next week for the final part where we're going to be taking a deep dive into some of the scientific literature around the topic of automatic core engagement. I look forward to seeing you next week on Love at First Science. Thank you for listening and your continued support. If you feel that any of the topics that were shared today resonates with you or perhaps you just feel that someone listening could benefit from this information, please do share it. Also remember that you can support the podcast by leaving a review. That's all for now. I'd like to wish you love at First Science.